Welcome to Sober Nation FM, a podcast network dedicated to sharing experience, strength, and hope so that you may continue to live your best life of recovery. The Sober Podcast Network is brought to you by Sober Nation. Do you want to live a healthy, sober life? Sober Nation is the world's leading online recovery community. Find support, resources, stories of hope, and even an online treatment program at SoberNation.com. Live a happy life. Be comfortable in your skin and join the recovery movement. Once again, that's SoberNation.com. Now enjoy today's episode. Welcome to the Cover 2 Resources podcast series a podcast series about addiction and addiction education. My name is Amy McNeil. I lost my brother Samuel to a heroin overdose on October 23rd, 2015. He was 28. As a family, we thought we were prepared to help Sam fight addiction, but we were painfully mistaken. My family founded Cover Two Resources in memory of Sam. Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. The Cover Two Resources podcast is an ongoing series in which we interview experts in the fight against opioid addiction. It is made possible through donations and sponsorships from concerned individuals or organizations. If you want to help in the fight against opioid addiction, please consider donating or sponsoring the Cover Two podcast. Go to cover2.org for more information. This podcast is available on iTunes, Google Music, Stitcher, and via RSS feed. Simply search for the full name, Cover two resources on your platform of choice. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Greg McNeil, founder of Cover Two Resources. Welcome to this episode. This is our After Dreamland series. Joining me today is Lisa Roberts. Lisa is a health department nurse for the city of Portsmouth. She's been here for 29 years, and we're here today to talk a little bit about her experience in helping Sam Quinones with uh, the Dreamland book. So, Lisa, welcome. Well, thank you. I'm happy to be a part of this. Okay. So, Ohio has been described as the epicenter for the opioid epidemic by Sam Quinones in his book, Dreamland. And you've had a front row seat to, you know, this epidemic as it's unfolded. Um, and Sam met with you on numerous occasions in writing his, his book. And he speaks fondly, in fact, of uh, all of the help and assistance that you provided with him. So let's talk just a little bit about how the opioid epidemic has impacted Portsmouth and what you've witnessed there, Lisa. Um, well, First of all, I've been a nurse here for 29 years, and so my experience here has been primarily in healthcare as as a my employment. So I've worked in a variety of settings, including hospitals and juvenile detention facilities. So I really have really um, been involved in you know the healthcare aspect of this um, up until um, about 15 years ago. You know there was just this tremendous shift in the way that. Uh, prescription pain medication was being utilized and prescribed. For instance, when I was a, a nurse at the hospital in the 1980s, 
um, a narcotics order expired automatically in three days and people only got a narcotic for, you know, for three days in the hospital. And then that was for post-op pain. Um, people normally did not get it in a community setting whatsoever. And then, of course, there was, you know, a, a fundamental shift in the way that these things were prescribed. And I So that was the practice yeah. in the late 80s when you started. It was. That... Three days was the max that you would get a prescription for for narcotics. Yes, unless you were a cancer patient and you were in a in a in a terminal kind of situation, and then you would be able to get paid you know narcotic pain medication. At that time, there wasn't a lot of narcotic pain medications even available. Demerol was um, one of one of the ones that was available, and then there was um, always you know of course there's been morphine, but there was no drug such as oxycotton available. You know, we did not have um, very many hydrocodone products. And so um, it wasn't really until that that shift in the way that America treated pain and the fifth vital sign and all that kind of stuff that Sam explains in his book, Mm -hmm. that these new drugs became available. In the early 90s, early to mid 90s. Early to mid 90s. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. And so when that happened... Um, was about the time that, you know, we started seeing Dr. Proctor came to town. So it all was sort of this perfect little storm. David Proctor. Dr. Proctor, kind of, we always called him the godfather of the pill mills. But Dr. Proctor was a doctor that was um, brought to Portsmouth and um, recruited by a reputable doctor, fresh out of medical school and all of that kind of stuff. And he became like a a very prolific prescriber. And, um, And he, at that time, kind of established this precedence for people could get pills off of him and they could sell them to people and they could pay their rent or whatever. And so he kind of became the go-to man to make extra money by using your medical card and, you know, sell At that time, it was diet pills. And then, of course, Oxycontin came out and he evolved into that. And that's when things really took off with the pain medication. So what we saw after that was just um, a gradual increase in people who were accessing prescription painkillers, getting addicted to prescription painkillers. Um, people would then, you know, put together groups and entire groups of people to go and get pills and the whole sponsor thing came out and prescription drugs eventually over the next, I mean, in 2002, uh, Portsmouth actually made headlines in U.S. News and World Report, um, and it was called The Poor Man's Heroin, and the article was about Oxycontin. It was about um, a, a new doctor. We started seeing this sort of family tree effect from Dr. Proctor where you know, more uh, more of these doctors would get into this per- this type of prescribing. And so that doctor's name was Dr. Lilly. And eventually Barbara Walters came to town. Um, that was about 2003 and did a special on Dr. Lilly. And so we were seeing headlines about Portsmouth, Ohio in 2002. So what followed over the next decade was just a, an extreme worsening of this, um, you know, infestation with prescription painkillers. More people became addicted. We ended up with 12 so, pill mills. So let me jump in here. So they don't don't just go and say, uh, you know, give me a bunch of pain pills. So how does this evolve where these numbers are just growing and growing and growing? Um, well, there were a couple of things that helped with that. First of all, Medicaid, you know, people could access these pills with, with a, a medical card that so they didn't cost anything. 
Um, or people could round up people with a medical card and take them and have them access the pills, and then that person could get the pills and sell them. It was very profitable so, to sell them. Uh, so Medicaid really covered the pills. Yes. There was a lot of people here who had Medicaid mm. because Medicaid, this is a, a rural area. And, mm-hmm. You know, our industry left 30 years ago. Right. Um, we had steel mills and uh, shoe factories, and we have a lot of poor people here. And so um, the pain clinics actually didn't even take the medical card. They they took cash. Um, they didn't want to deal with all of that, you know, oversight because um, they were very shady. But they could get their prescriptions filled with the medical card. So they could sell the pills that they got with their uh, medical card for $5,000 a month. $5,000 a month? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Which made it easy to pay the $200 to the doctor, you sure. know, for the visit. So, sure. so that just grew exponentially. So even and, if they weren't addicted... Yeah. It was a way to make money. It was a way to make when money. jobs are scarce. Yeah. And so when people became addicted then, it became really easy for um, anybody who wanted to take advantage of them uh, you know, to round up plenty of people that were, were willing to take part in this because they would it would help them with their addiction. Plus, yeah. they could share their pills with the sponsor that took them to the pain clinics. Mm-hmm. But we saw it gradually get worse and worse. And by 2010, um, Portsmouth, uh, Scioto County had really reached a crisis point. Uh, a lot of data started coming out. It was the computer age. You know, lots of information became available. And um, in 2010, we found out that we had um, the highest fatal overdose rate in the state of Ohio. Our hepatitis C rate was five times the state average. And that was from IV drug use. And the thing that really captured everyone's attention was that we had the highest rate of newborns born with neonatal abstinence syndrome, which is opiate addiction. Mm -hmm. So our our hospital was up there dealing with all of these opiate-addicted babies. Um, And so when all of this kind of came out... and, of course, then we had some data that showed that we had um, the highest amount of people in the penitentiary for drug-related crimes, and that was six times the state average. People got addicted. People started selling them. The pain clinics came. We had 9.3 million pain pills dispensed in this county in 2010. That was enough for each every citizen to have 123 pain pills apiece. Just complete, like, social unrest <laughs> had happened. Nice. And um, and as a result of all of that, our health commissioner here in Scioto County um, bravely declared, like, a public health emergency. And when was that? That was in two th- January of 2010. And okay. uh, we were the first county... Um, now entire states are declaring public health emergencies, yeah. but Soda County was the first county in the United States to declare a public health emergency of prescription painkillers. Okay. So, so that ended up, you know, kind of, I guess, um, <clears throat> garnering some attention. We ended up with some attention from the governor and so we got some federal attention. We ended up you know, getting some grants and things like that to help out and really kind of went to work on um, getting the state laws changed to help rein in this overprescribing. Yeah. We had criminal overprescribing going on where it was intentional by some of these doctors that were imported to town by you know, crooks and felons, but there was also like liberal uh, overprescribing going on by well-intended physicians that really weren't, wasn't aware, you know, that these prescription painkillers could, um, could lead to such harm. So Lisa, House Bill 93 was passed in May of 2011 and the pill mills closed. 
Now, that was a big deal here in particular, here um, more than any place in Ohio. So can you tell us about the marches? You began marches prior to that, and it culminated. The marches were coordinated by citizens here. They had... We'd had three town halls and people were coming out and saying, you know, they've got addicted family members and their kids are addicted and their husbands are addicted. And the whole community really just sort of came together and solidly said, we, everybody's addicted here. This is awful. So how many, um, how many marches did they do? Well, there was this one um, preacher who said that we should do seven marches like they did, like they did around Jericho, you know, the battle of Jericho in the Bible, because it caused Jericho to fall. So that sounded good. That's what we kind of wanted to happen was the pain clinics to blow up and fall like Jericho. So, so the churches got together and the citizens got together. I remember they had them every Thursday at 7 p.m. and there were seven of them in a row. Didn't matter if it was rain or shine. They would go to the pain clinics. They would make a great big circle around them and hold hands and pray and hold their hands up. And there were people of all different faiths. There were hundreds of people that came out and participated in in these. And the very, very last march, I'll never forget, it was on the east end of Portsmouth, and it was raining. And I was with the police chief, and he escorted the marchers with the lights on the police car and everything, you know, to be safe. And when we got back to the church, there was a... Um, a big rainbow that came out across the sky. And then another rainbow came out and crossed that rainbow. I've never seen anything like this. It was like a cross in the sky. And everybody was saying, well, look at that. Look at that. And then it quit raining and it got real bright. (laughs) And I remember looking around and people were coming out of their houses, like looking at the sky and looking at this. It had been raining and dreary and dark and suddenly it was really bright. There was this bizarre cross in the sky. It was very strange. Quite surreal. Um, It was. And two days later, of course, this was all secret. We didn't know it at the time. Police chief knew. He didn't tell me. But two days later, um, we have these mass raids by the Drug Enforcement Administration and the FBI. They raided the pain clinics all at one time. It was like... They were everywhere, swarming all the pain clinics. And and so they raided them. And then House Bill 93 passed like three days later. It was signed by the governor, which legally put an end to them. Because what would happen prior to this was that they would get raided by the Drug Enforcement Administration or whatever, but they'd just go back and open right back up. It'd take them years to build a case. You know, they, they'd open back up. Never, nothing really ever got stopped. Or they would just relocate someplace else, you know, mm-hmm. under a different name. There was just so many tricks they had. But, but that effectively ended the era of the pain clinics in Portsmouth and the pill mills and, and that criminal occupation of these predatory like industries that we had. And um, and, I, and I think that was just the very beginning of the, the town being able to heal. Just to back up a little bit, though, what had happened was so many people started coming forth and saying that they, you know, had lost family members, that there were kids overdosing and dying. Here within my workplace, our kids went from being, you know, really pretty, you know, notoriously good teenagers to being you know, making headlines for robbery and all kinds of stuff because they were, they had gotten addicted to painkillers. They were just everywhere and adults were sharing them and selling them and kids were getting hooked like crazy. And this Um, also hit close to home, didn't it? It did, yeah. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, my own, my own child, my own daughter, my oldest, um, had her very first job. She was 16. She was so excited. She got a little job being a waitress and 
she, uh, I didn't know it at the time, but, you know, a few, six months later, I find out that the, the manager's been giving her um, painkillers, you know, to help her feed her or back her, help be a good waitress. You know, in her mind, she was just taking Tylenol or aspirin. She didn't know any better. She's 16. Um, and by 17, she was, um, you know, she was a full-blown addict. She was uh, spending every penny of her paycheck on painkillers. Um to somebody else that worked there that was the adult that gave her the painkillers in the first place. Um, and you didn't know this right off the it. bat. How no. did you discover that? How did you I, figure it out? Well, I, you know, she, it was, she was 16, 17, uh, there, she was, you know, working and going to school it was, she was very kind of, I didn't see her very much, but you know, it was kind of normal for a teenager. They withdraw from the family. They're breaking ties or whatever. But um, what happened, I had found some pills in her car um, and I looked them up and and identified them by one of them internet things, and it was painkillers. I asked her about them. She tells me that she had somebody else in her car. It made me a little suspicious. But mm. later, um, you know, everything just, her behavior kind of changed. She wasn't wearing makeup. You know, she was just throwing her hair up in a ponytail, wasn't fixing herself up, very secretive. But um, somebody noticed that uh, one of her, a boyfriend that she had was tall and he noticed that the top of her jewelry box was, uh, the varnish was all missing. So he wasn't in on this? He was her boyfriend and he wasn't in on this? No. Hmm. He suspected it. Yeah. But he said, you need to look at that, look at her jewelry box. She has worn all the varnish off of her jewelry box crushing pills. And the jewelry box set up really high. I couldn't see up there, but hmm. he saw it. And, um, and I, you know, I thought, oh no, that, you know, that's not happening. And I went up there and got the jewelry box and took it down and looked at it. And sure enough, it had, I wiped it with my hand. It had residue on it. I tasted it. It was bitter. It was pills. And, um, that was my first, you know, when I really realized that she was snorting pills, which is very common in that progression in addiction. They go from swallowing them to snorting them and, um, then smoking them to shooting up. IV. It's just a normal progression of that addiction. And she was snorting. Um, <clears throat> so that began a 10-year nightmare of dealing with her addiction. Um, but I had plenty of company because, you know, I always really kind of considered myself lucky because so many of my friends' kids didn't make it. Their their kids died. I mean, most of my friends have buried kids um, from this overdose epidemic. And I have two that have buried all of their children. So, um, but my daughter, you know, she, she went to treatment over and over multiple places, every kind of place you can imagine in and out of the state. It was always the same when she came back, she'd be good for a few weeks or a few months and then she would relapse, you know? And, um, so over and over this happened, it played out for, I mean, she spent years really sort of just going to these places and staying and it never worked. In fact, I actually you started getting sort of like institutionalized, you know, just, you know, it wasn't like she couldn't do anything outside of these institutions. Um, And we eventually found an injection shot called Vivitrol. And it was like a Hail Mary, you know, Mm -hmm. got her this Vivitrol shot and prayed that that would, nothing else had worked. And she's been on it now for two years and she's just doing fantastic, you know, on that shot. No relapses or anything. Nope. But she has to stay on the shot. Oftentimes people uh, kid themselves, delude themselves into thinking, you know, Vivitrol is a panacea and it takes care of everything. When in fact, it's it's a lot that has to take place for a successful recovery. Mm-hmm. Can you speak to that in your personal well, experience? 
Uh, yeah, she does. She does undergo counseling and things like that. But you know, you have to keep in mind that she's had ten years of counseling, and um, you know, it none of it worked. You know, and so the shot is the way. The shot is what keeps her clean now. It keeps her off of the off of the um, opiates. Her she was addicted so young that I'm convinced that her brain is just changed around and formed around that shot to where without that injection, her brain screams for it, you know, Mm. um, because of some wiring, rewiring that's taken place. But, um, but she does undergo counseling just only like an hour a week, basically now Mm -hmm. at the point where she's pretty much just maintenance Vivitrol shot at this, at this point. That's, that's terrific. And how about all of the people, places, and things that she used to go around and namely the people? Um, does she have a whole new group, a whole new tribe that she goes around now? <laughs> um, you know, she, she does. Um, she, she married, she married another addict, um, that she met in rehab. That's another common thing that happens. And mm. then you end up with multiple people in the family that are, that have this, um, have the addiction. But, um, and because of that, she, um, she has relocated and she's, you know, she's with him. He himself has relapsed multiple times. Um, and he now is on the injection, which is kind of funny because now she monitors him. She gets on him. She makes him get the shot. So she's become like her mother in that way, I suppose. (laughs) And she's a member of these Vivacrawl Facebook groups and she encourages other people to get the shot and everything. So, um, so I'm real proud of her for that, but that's what the injection did. Um, you know, for my family. Um, but, but on the other hand, we have a lot of people coming to this county to get clean. <laughs> They're leaving their counties. It's not just our county that's like that. It's pretty much all of America, at least the heartland, um, that has just become, you know, very depressing. Um, people don't have a lot of opportunity. There's a lot of people who are stressed out by um, just not being able to achieve economically, you know, mm. what they would like. Brutal. So... Today, I understand there's hope in the community. Um, so tell us about how things have changed after Dreamland, Lisa. <laughs> well, thing, you know, things actually are getting better here. Economically, uh, things are, it's still a struggle in Scioto County. We have a high, um, high poverty rate. 39% of our kids live in poverty. It has not become, you know, what it used to be when we had a strong manufacturing base and people could honest, honestly make a good, you know, blue-collar living. However, we do have thousands of people, um, you know, just kind of eliminating the pills really kind of help. We don't have people getting addicted to pain pills now, even accidentally through, uh, you know, medicine or a legitimate medical need so much. But um, a lot of people have sought recovery. We got, we've gone from one treatment facility to eight. We have addiction treatment, um, like a full continuum of addiction treatment here. Um, and so a lot of people are, you know, have sought recovery and are either on recovery medications or um, have, you know, went through a, a program and are um, are part of the, we have a very vibrant kind of recovery community and I'm really proud of them because I have to tell you that just this past week, um, they together got together and networked across Ohio and the very first, um, national heroin march against heroin 
is happening here in March in Portsmouth. It's conducted and arranged entirely by recovering addicts, and our recovering addicts are a big part of it. But some of the other things that we've done, um, we piloted Ohio's first naloxone program, and we named it Project Dawn. Great name. And, uh, and it was named after a Portsmouth uh, woman who died from a after going to a pain clinic, one of our pill mills for the first time. Her name was Leslie Dawn Cooper, and I named it after her. Um, so You named it? Yeah, oh. I did. And uh, so um, Dawn is death avoided with naloxone. Right. So I got to pilot it. We piloted it here first in Scioto County. Um, at that time, the laws were different in Ohio. It was not so easy to, mm-hmm. to give naloxone to regular citizens because it's still a prescription, and all of these prescription you know, regulations were attached to them. Um, and so we marketed the naloxone program first through our syringe exchange program because those people were very, you know, they're, they're people that are still currently um, addicted and IV drug users. And so they have networks. They're the people that are the most at risk for dying at this point. And um, so we marketed it through them at first. In the first year that we had Project Dawn, they saved about 55 people using naloxone. So the word spread about naloxone and, and eventually um, we were able to get some policy changes in, o, um, in Ohio where now that you can get naloxone at pharmacies without a prescription. Since that time, you know, we've got law enforcement carrying naloxone now. Our fire department is phenomenal. They're responding to every overdose in Portsmouth. And uh, our overdose rate whereas the rest of the state has risen dramatically. Ours has gone down a little bit um, and stayed. We've kind of leveled off in Sayota County. So we've dropped from first place in fatal overdoses to fifth place. Okay. To that point, um, another program that in a community not far from here is called Quick Response Teams. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You're familiar with Coleraine, Ohio, and Dan yep. Malloy and his team? Yeah. Okay. We are actually looking at doing something like that. We're, we are currently involved in, we talked to our police chief about that. There's actually some of the Comprehensive Addiction and Recovery Act grants that are out now. So I have one on my desk. I'm looking mm-hmm. at it. Yeah. Um, and that's something that we're kind of pursuing too. But we also did something here called Recovery Gateway. And um, Recovery Gateway is, um, we are um, a health department. And we are in the process of getting certified as an alcohol and drug treatment facility in the state of Ohio so that we can um, conduct, um, you know, alcohol and drug treatment. We just hired a field case manager who is a recovering addict, Josh. And um, his job is to be this field person that goes out and uh, works with people that are in active drug use or people who overdose um, and survive and um, to help motivate them or into treatment or at least minimize the damage that they do to themselves and to society. For example, we have a syringe exchange program. And through the syringe exchange program, you know, we can at least have contact with them. We can, um, you know, help motivate them to get them into a treatment program that may work. Many of them have been through treatment programs. They just decided that, you know, none of it works. So what the heck, <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and there are now there's other options available like Vivitrol or buprenorphine mm-hmm. for some people or methadone for some people, you know? And so, um, but he works with high risk Clients who are currently active users. So Josh will be the first person to do it? 
He'll be the only person. Is there plans to expand it? Beyond there is plans to expand it in okay. the future, but you have to go, jump through these kind of bureaucratic mm-hmm. hoops. Right. First of all, you have to get certified in the state of Ohio, and mm-hmm. we um, is a big process for that. We're in that process. We should, we have a visit February 1st, so we should be certified soon after February 1st. Okay. Then you're able to start, you know, doing some services that you can actually bill for because you have to be able to sustain this through mm-hmm. billing or yeah. through a grant program. Mm-hmm. And um, and so hopefully we, we do plan to expand that program and hire another, you know, another case manager, another, you know, peer support peer navigator type of person. And we're currently looking at some grants and things like that that would be able to help us to do that. But as a response team, then, you know, with the with, in conjunction with law enforcement, um, we will be able to go out and, and access these people that have overdosed in the, you know, shortly after they um, overdose and survive yeah. um, to try to pull them into treatment. How do they, how does he find the people? Well, we don't have a needle exchange truck. We are, uh, we're not mobile. They're here right now in that back oh, room. Okay. So we have a couple hundred people that we access through that. And then um, people that overdose, we access them through the emergency department. The social worker that meets with the person when they overdose will have to have their permission, but they'll call and he'll go to the emergency department where they're at. Or um, they sign a paper and the hospital notifies us that they had an overdose person and he can go to their home. So he's actually going to their homes and everything um, to access his people. So there's a little bit, there's some hope on the horizon. Mm -hmm. Things do appear to be improving. Mm -hmm. Um, You have helped pilot it. You and and your team have piloted a number of of programs that are working very, very well statewide and, and beyond. Um, and also, Lisa, you can go back to, and you can probably remember back, a simpler time when there was a dreamland pool here in Portsmouth mm-hmm. and the community and, and the sense of community that you had there and the vibrant economy you had. Is there any opportunity here? Can you see down the road? to come back to those days? You know, we need, we just need some economic investment. Um, And I don't know that that's ever really going to, you know, this is a Rust Belt, middle, you know, middle United States, heartland Rust Belt town. There's There's thousands of towns like this throughout the heartland of America that once thrived, had factories and, uh, you know, we made, this town made bombs for World War II at the steel mill. We supplied shoelaces for the entire world. Um, I don't think that that's ever going to come back. Um, I wish it would, but, you know, so much of that, our economic you know, manufacturing base has been outsourced to other countries and through all of these trade agreements. I don't think that's ever going to come back to us. Um, hopefully, you know, we'll be able to kind of hold on and reinvent some economic opportunity here. And it'd be wonderful if somebody would come along and invest some, um, you know, invest in some factories or something here that would give people gainful employment. We do have people that love to work um, and people that would work. We just don't have good work yeah. here. Final thoughts for our listeners. Things are, this is really hard. This is a probably the greatest challenge we've ever faced um, as a country in terms of um, this public health crisis. And one of the biggest barriers that I see, and, you know, I still take 
crap from people all the time about, well, you know, why do, why do people care about those people? You know, maybe they'll all just die and then we'll all be better off. I mean, those kinds of comments, that stigma and, uh, those kinds of comments that are just so negative that really help perpetuate the problem. They serve as big barriers. Yep. You know, whenever we piloted the naloxone program, I mean, I would read the comments on the newspapers throughout the country that would say, what are they doing? They should be just helping and giving them all the heroin they want. I mean, this is the kind of stigma and mentality that a lot of people still have. And, you know, first of all, and I always kind of say, you know, first of all, many of these people became addicted to a substance that they believed was a medication. That was given to them by a trusted doctor that they didn't choose to become addicted. They were addicted by health care. You know, the doctor drank the Kool-Aid. He believed the pharmaceutical rep. So you're talking about people that became addicted and these people did not become addicted by choice. Yeah, they might be heroin addicts now and they might be shooting heroin up their arm. But the choice, they didn't have that choice. The choice, you know, it's not a choice once you're addicted. It, It is a necessity. It is a bio necessity to that addicted person. And um, and then the other people that made the choice, well, they didn't plan to become this way. So I think sure. we need to be looking at this from a public health kind of standpoint and not so much. It is a brain disease. I, I, I see it all the time. Um, I deal every day. I've got 100 people coming in today that are active heroin <laughs> users. Every single one of those people will say, I don't want to be this way. They cry. They wish they weren't this way. Like I said, they like to help other people not become like them. But, you know, their brain is affected. Their brain is diseased. They they do not think like we do. And that is the drug talking, not that person. Well, Lisa, I want to thank you (laughs) for your time today and congratulate you on your, over the course of the last decade and a half, your hard work that Mm -hmm. you've put in um, on uh, helping to uh, come up with solutions for the opioid epidemic. Tremendous. We've been visiting today with Lisa Roberts, Health Department Nurse for the City of Portsmouth, Ohio. My name is Greg McNeil, the founder of Cover 2 Resources. Thank you for joining us for this special edition of our PPT podcast series, After Dreamland. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover 2 Resources podcast. This episode is a production of Cover 2 Resources and is made possible by listeners like you. With your support, the Cover 2 team can continue to research and broadcast these resources to others in need. If you'd like to donate or to sponsor a future podcast, please visit cover2.org. As always, thank you for listening. Together, we can make a difference in the opioid epidemic, one life at a time.